Hello, readers. Adrian Hayes is a record-breaking adventurer, author, keynote speaker, leadership coach, documentarian, and Guinness World Record holder. The book we're talking about today is One Man's Climb, A Journey of Trauma, Tragedy, and Triumph on K2. Adrian, what was your goal in writing this book? It's a good question because I was I, I tried K2, I attempted K2 twice, 2013, 2014. It was two years after I summited in, in 2016 that I was actually asked to write it. You know, I think so many people these days, they've already got their plans made. They're going to do this big adventure and they've got the film documentary lined up and the book and the show and all the, the podcasts and the YouTube videos. I didn't. I was asked two years later and then said about it. But, you know, having been asked to do it, you know, I wanted I wanted the book to be not just a book about climbing a mountain. I wanted it to be a bit about everything, about you know, about society, our lives in the world below, the view from the top, lessons from the edge, all these other things that would make it a book for all people, not just mountain lovers. And just for some context for people who maybe aren't familiar with K2, what exactly is K2? Absolutely. And we should maybe start with that one. So K2 is the world's second highest mountain. Uh, Obviously, Everest is the first, the highest. Uh, it's Everest is located on the Nepal Chinese border, the Nepal Tibet border. K2 is located about a thousand miles further north on the Pakistan Chinese border. Uh, now it's in the back end of beyond. I don't suppose too many of your listeners will have been up to the region or not, but, uh, it's the world's second highest mountain. Now amongst the general public, you know, Everest is the biggest. And of course there's a big lot of press every year, usually bad press. K2 is, Really, the Mountaineers Mountain, it's the, it's the gold medal of mountaineering. It's the one that, that means most to, to mountaineers. So it's a serious, serious undertaking. And as I said, the, widely regarded as, as the ultimate test in high-altitude mountaineering. So generally speaking, why do people try to do something so seemingly crazy as make it to the top of K2? Well, now, you're asking something because I address this right in the beginning chapter of the book. Um, because I really address why do people do these big things, big goals, and not just mountaineering, but any big goal around the world. And, you know, on the mountains, climbers will always have said through the last, through the last century, they go for the freedom, the, the challenge, getting into nature, that focus, the camaraderie amongst the teams and all the rest of the sort of stuff. Now, I, I get all that, and, that's, and it's absolutely true. It's a fundamental part of it. But you can get that by going on a, a mountain in the Rocky Mountains or even, even less, even, you know, smaller hills. But... To do these big things, we do it for our own significance. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that's why I do it. And that's why I've done all these things since I was 16 years of age. It's my, it's my striving for, for achievement, my personal goals, self-respect, self-worth, living a full life, wanting to experience everything I can out of life. That's why we do it. What has changed the last 12, 13 years or so is how social media has has transformed that internal stuff, I believe, to increasing amounts of external significance. By that, I mean, look at me, look where I've done, look where I am. You know, it's that respect, recognition, and, and sort of fame. And it's, a, it's an uneasy balance between the things. And that explains why so many more people doing all bigger things in all walks of life. I appreciate the way that you show respect for K2 throughout this book, and that includes you really going over the history of this mountain. So when did man first reach K2's peak, and what allowed him to do so where so many others had failed? 
Yeah, the golden age of the Himalayan mountaineer, the Himalayan mountaineering. We're talking about the primarily the 14 peaks above 8,000 meters, 25 and a half thousand feet or so. Um, you know, these were the the big ones. It was like it was like the the targets of reaching the North Pole first and the South Pole, reached the summit of Everest. Now, Everest was reached in 1953, 29th of July, 1953. Uh, K2 reached a year later, 1954, 31st of July. But if you look through the history throughout the last century, many, many expeditions, British, French, Italian, American, you know, they'd all had these forays in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. But it was in the 50s that, that really siege mentality, massive trips, you know, 400-odd porters supplying expedition that they really managed to conquer these uh, these mountains. So K2 was, was finally conquered in 1954, but it, it's history, just, you know, it's a history, it's dire, diabolical, uh, and it's just depressing, frankly. You look at this thing, you think, why on earth would anyone ever want to try this mountain? For, for good reasons. You point out that the percentage of people who have died attempting to climb K2 is significantly higher than uh, what you normally find in the sport. You also do write about, uh, in, dis- in discussing the history, uh, some of the harrowing failed efforts to make it to the top. Is there one that sticks out in your mind more than the others? Well, I think the one with the occultist Alistair Crowley, who, you know, who was a right, if you, people Google him up, he was a right <laughs> sort of uh, odd bod. Um, you know, he tried. It was quite a good climber, but he had some very, very strange practices. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, I, I sort of pointed to today because, you know, today's version of, of controversy is photoshopping yourself on the top of Everest. And that's happened <laughs> on the, the, the last two times or performance enhancing drugs or, you know, saturation oxygen or, you know, really milking the system. Back then, it was it was sort of pulling guns to people's heads. You know, so I suppose there's always been the competitive element, but as I wrote, it's the decision-making has been so highly flawed, the failure of leadership, the crass decisions made, the the luck, obviously the luck went against so many so many people in the past. So, you know, put it together, it's, um, it's, it's pretty dire. But just to go back quickly, the stats, yeah, I mean, look, Everest has now been climbed by about 7,000 people. It's probably more, 7,500. And every year, about you know, five or six will die last. This year was about 11. Um, but you've got many, many hundreds of people trying it. So let's say, you know, five to six people die every year, but there's 500 attempting them out every, every year. Whereas K2, a much, much smaller number, 40, 50, 60, sometimes even less. Um, and it's been summed by about 400 people only in, in that uh, 65 odd years. So I think we've done a pretty good job of letting people know just how big of a challenge K2 is. And uh, you as somebody who uh, describes yourself as an adventurer, in 2012, you eventually decide to try to climb K2 that following summer. Why did you make that decision? Well, K2 had been on the thoughts for a few years and, you know, won the power. And I, I sort of say to Alyssa, how I'm not sort of, uh, you know, painting myself as Britain's top alpinist, Britain's top high altitude mountain climber. I'm an all-rounder, you know, polar, desert, jungle, ice caps, mountains, sailing, the lot. And I've, you know, served in the army 10 years, did a lot of extreme stuff there. Um, but K2 was always in the goals. But, you know, I just thought this, this, apart from the low risk of getting up there, and that's one thing, you know, most years nobody gets up there. And the, the reasons are because the weather's always appalling, the snowfall conditions are, are bad, it's a steep ice climb, it's a steep technical rock climb 
uh, avalanche dangers, rockfall dangers, all, you know, all these things mount up to, to make it such a big challenge. But it was the it was the high risk, low reward that, that got me. High risk is one thing. You know, we do all these risky things and we know it's a risky sport, but it was the low reward. It was the the chance of getting up was so low. But basically, uh, this happened in my personal life with my children. And, you know, it was a desperate time. And uh, I think when, when a crisis hits you really bad, you can sink into the depression. You can hit the bad stuff liquid or even worse or you can just bury your mind on a physical goal you know thousands of miles away and i did the latter so that was the sort of pivot that made me sort of go for it in 2012 you had some initial reservations that involved your personal life about the climb when you were making this decision in 2012 what were those things and how did they eventually become catalyst for you eventually challenging k2 in 2013 yeah look i mean Mountain climbing, high altitude mountain climbing, is full of people taking risks, let's be honest. Now, but it changes when you've got kids, let's be totally honest. When you're young, free, single, uh, you know, you think the world's your oyster. You don't think anything's going to happen to you. And very few people on my both years on K2, there, were, there was virtually none happily married, 2.4 kids, because I just think it's too risky. Now, in my case, and I'll, I'll will because I write about the book, but basically the first embers of what would end up being a five-year battle through family courts for contact with my children started and uh and i mean no disrespect but that was it was so integral to the story that i included in there you know i was prevented from seeing my kids and so without my children there you know in, in this absolutely dire depressing place i just i you needed something you know, one of the basic human drivers uh, of, of behaviors is to avoid pain we will do anything to avoid pain and this was my way of doing it I and mean, it mirrored to me when I, my first climb back in, first big thing, first serious girlfriend rather, back in uh, many years ago, I was 20 or 20, I was a serious girlfriend. You know, she broke off our relationship because I was traveling around the world climbing mountains. So I was so, you know, right, I'll join the SES, which is Special <laughs> Air Service, our Special Forces. So, you know, that was my way out of it years and years before. So I saw a similar thing happen when I started to go for K2. Now, uh, you start to train for the climb, and uh, we will get into what that training entailed between the first and second times uh, a little bit down the road, but you also had to find a team, whether it was a single person or a group. Who did you decide on and why? Yeah, now, I, I have done things on my own, and there the things you can do, but the risks multiply three times, four times, five times, ten times. You've got to get a team member. You've got to get a teammate um, either a teammate or a wider team. Sometimes it varies depending on the sort of terrain you're going for. I've done teams of two, threes, fours, fives, the, the lot. Um, I got in touch with a Canadian climber, Al Hancock. And Al was probably Canada's most accomplished high-altitude mountaineer. He'd climbed five of the 8,000ers at that stage. He's since gone another two. He's done half of them, uh, the 8,000-meter peaks. And so we, we teamed up and, you know, we were a similar sort of age, similar, you know, but we weren't greyhounds, neither of us, but had that extreme endurance ability. And, you know, you've got, you've got to click up with a, with a teammate, especially a, it's a buddy, buddy system. He's your putting your whole life in hand. So we, um, we got together. We had a lot of serious team agreements before we went on our first trip, but um, we end up doing both attempts together. Your 2013 attempt to travel to K2 through Islamabad encountered two issues, one visa-related, the other pertaining to the dangerous nature of that part of the world. What were those things? 
Yeah, Pakistan, unfortunately, and hasn't got the same tourist uh, infrastructure that Nepal has. I'm sure many of your listeners will have been to Nepal, trekking Everest Base Camps or Annapurna. You know, it's well set up for tourists. The pa- Pakistan is, is sadly, you know, a few decades behind. And it's, you know, and it's unfortunate because the Pakistan we read about in the newspapers or on the news or TV or radio is pretty dire. I mean, it's, it's Taliban, it's terrorism, it's suicide bombers, it's dictatorships, it's takeovers of government, it's all wars, battles with India, you know, it's, it's pretty dire. But get behind that, you've got a, an amazing country, the high Karakoram, middle of nowhere, beautiful people, beautiful landscape. Um, so I encountered visa problems arriving. I couldn't get in, basically, which is a, a shock to systems. That was the first thing. The second thing is the day I arrived, the, the Taliban murdered 11 climbers at Nanga Parbat base camp. Nanga Parbat is the ninth highest mountain in the world. And it's got probably one of the lowest base camps because, if again, just to try, you, you set up a base camp, you trek into a base camp, right, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten days. Taliban dressed as police and they murdered 11 climbers, mostly Eastern Europeans, Chinese. Um, but a, a, tra- a tragic start to the whole Karakoram, the mountain range climbing season that year. And it was, um, yeah, a very sh- a shock to the system. Eventually, you are able to travel to that base camp by plane. You also have to do uh, quite a bit of walking to get there as well. For you as somebody who had put in so much work and preparation to get to this point, what was it like to finally lay eyes on K2 for the first time? Yeah, as I said, K2, even getting to, you take a flight, internal flight to a village, you take a eight-hour uh, four-wheel drive, truck through, you know, precarious mountain roads to this final settlement, which is about sort of 11,000, 12,000 feet. Then you've got to trek eight days to base camp. And the thing with K2, it, it is so remote. You only see it the very, very last day of this trek to base camp. There's no villages. There's no tea houses. There's no settlements. Even its name, the reason it's not got a, a, a local ethnic name, and it's just got this syllable, K2, is because it was so far from anywhere. So I think finally setting my eyes on it that final day, and I turned the camera, you know, it's a pretty awesome sight. And uh, you read about it, you've seen pictures, but seeing it in the flesh is, is a different thing. Conversely, um, you know, up to that point, it had been the unknown. And this is, you know, the, the months leading up to, to doing this ex- first year's expedition, I was wake up middle of the night, think it's too risky, it's too selfish for me as a father. You know, what if I do if I, you know, came a cropper for my kids? All these things. And this is the unknown. But when you see it in the known, right, it's there. It's front of, in front of you. You can see it. You can feel it. You can breathe it. It sort of loses that sort of, uh, loses that mystery. And, and I think as humans, we do much better with the known than the unknown, good or bad. You know, there on that first final day, it was known I could see it. Hmm. Now, there are a number of challenges and ways for a person to climb an 8,000-foot mountain what are the challenges of the different altitudes as you're trying to scale an 8,000-plus-foot mountain? Yeah, let me just create 8,000-meter mountain. Excuse so me, meter. 20, I, uh, I made a very common 26. American mistake. My apologies on that one. <laughs> 20, 26,000 uh, and, and so on feet uh, mountain. So, look, the big mountains, and I know, you know there's mountains in the Rockies, uh, up in Alaska, in Africa, in Europe. Uh, all around the world, but the Himalayas, it dwarfs everything. We're talking mountains that are three to 4,000 meters, 12,000 feet, 10,000 feet higher than anything else in the world. So the challenges, you know, most 
multiply as you go up in altitude. You know, we can survive at 17,000 feet. We can survive there. But you go to 19,000 feet, you've got maybe a few weeks. You go to 21,000 feet, you've got a, a few days. You go up to 26,000 feet, you've got a day. So, you know, a day to survive, the death zone, because this is what the, the problem these mountains are. This is why it takes two months to climb them. You've got to trek in the base camp for about 10 days. You've got to do what's called a rotation. You go up the mountain, set up a camp uh, at a higher ele- elevation, you know, put your, your seating bags, your stores, your tent tents, you come down again. You might spend three, four days. You do another rotation and go even higher, set up another camp and then come down. And when all these camps have been set, then you launch the final summit push when you've got a good weather window. So that's basically how you climb one of these big mountains. Another basic ideological question regarding people who choose to climb an 8,000-meter-plus mountain. Some choose to use oxygen tanks at higher elevations, while others shun oxygen. Why do people choose to do the latter, and how much of a difference does that make in things? I would go back to what I said earlier in the show. Why would people do it solo? Why would people do it... Uh, Alpine style, that's not using fixed lines, that's that's belaying, that's going with your equipment up a mountain. Why do people not use oxygen? It's for that significance. It's for that, you know, look, I've done it without oxygen. Now, you can argue whether it's internal or external, but that's why people do it. To the general public, they don't give, you know, two hoots, really, I suppose, when you when you read about it, but that's what it's like. But it does make a big difference. Um, look, I, I summited Everest without oxygen. My oxygen mask didn't work. My mask didn't work on the final summit push until the last hour of it. And I know what it's like. And it didn't work on the way down as, as well. So I know what it's like to climb without oxygen. And all I can say for myself that I probably lost 5 million brain cells that day on Everest. And uh, my health is more important to me than just that recognition, respect. Look, I've done it without oxygen. So I used oxygen on K2 because it's risky enough as it is why make it even more riskier and um, less chance of success without using oxygen? So I used it. There's also the question of whether or not to use Sherpas. What are Sherpas and how do they help? So Sherpas are Nepalese uh, tribesmen from Nepal. They are the highest ones. They're the ones who sort of basically genetically migrated through China, uh, you know, centuries ago. They live at altitude. They adapt to altitude better and they're phenomenal climbers. Um, they're better than anyone in the world uh, because they've got this genetic ability to operate at, at altitude. And, you know, mountaineering expeditions in the Himalayas have used Sherpas throughout the last century. I mean, it's nothing new uh, because they're better at it than us, and we use them. So we use them for the support, for taking some supplies up, but we didn't use them as guides. You know, again, there's a fine line. Yes, use them, uh, but me and Al Hancock, we made the decisions, we set the strategy, we did our own things. We weren't guided up there, which some people are. And it's, again, um, not criticizing people who are, but there's a different way you can use them. We, we try to use them for what they were best as and to help the support. It's like, I credit it to a, a cycle race. Look, you know, we watch the Tour de France or any big, these big races and the breakaways, the one man breakaway, the two man breakaway will always get hauled in by the peloton, the mass numbers of 10, 20, 30 cyclists. And it's the same with, with, breaking trails and support these mountains your strength is in your numbers uh, to a point and that gives you that better chance of getting to the top so just for people who are unfamiliar as you work your way up a mountain and k2 is uh, certainly no exception you start at base camp and there's advanced base camp and then you eventually hit camps along the way and you are acclimatizing yourself the process 
uh, seems like it's one that uh, lasts uh, several weeks, if not uh, an entire month or maybe even a little bit more than that. But eventually you get to the point in your 2013 journey where you have acclimatized yourself and it feels like you guys might have the opportunity to try and make a push to the top. Where was your head at in 2013 on the eve of attempting to make this push? On 2013, it wasn't in the best of places because we hadn't set up the camps as as effectively as we should have. We hadn't put time in the mountain as effectively as we should have. You know, ideally, we want four days, five days on one rotation and another four or five days on another rotation. Um, And we were really foreshortened. The weather was bad. And so, you know, we had a a small weather window because, as you're you're right to say, this process takes four, five, six weeks to set the camps up to get acclimatized and you're in between, you know, periods of bad weather. We'd had bad weather and we didn't have a very good weather window. You're, you're looking when you're doing the final summit push, which you go in, you know, camp, base camp to AB, advanced base camp, camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four, push the summit down to camp four, back down to base camp. That takes seven days or so. You're looking for a weather window to get this. So a window that's got five or six days that's going to allow you to get to the summit. We didn't have it. It was a much shorter, uncertain weather window. So an uncertain space, but you've got to put your head, you've got to get your head and think you're going to be all okay. But it wasn't uh, altogether looking great that first year. Well, you and many of the others that you were climbing with decided not to try and make that push once you had gotten past Camp 2 because the weather was becoming so dicey Two climbers did attempt to make it to the peak, a father and son duo named Marty and Denali Schmidt. Did they make it? Yeah, California-born Marty, well-known mountain guide around the world. Um, you know, he, I'd written to Marty before. We obviously got to know them very well. Phenomenally strong, and Denali is some. They climbed the 12th highest mountain just a few weeks before Broad Peak, it's called. They were strong. They were confident. They were highly skilled. Uh, they decided to go up when 18 guys decided to go down. And tragically, the night they went up, as we later found out two days, uh, two days later, they were wiped out by a massive avalanche at Camp 3 and uh, killed them and uh, would have wiped out all of us had we gone up. But uh, a, a very tragic end to, to the 2013 season. You do a great job of writing about the heart-wrenching aftermath of the Schmidt's deaths, the repeated attempts to reach them via radio, learning their fate from the Sherpas, letting their family, friends, and general public know what happened. You personally even spoke with Sequoia, who is Marty's daughter and Denali's sister, trying to help answer the angry questions of someone in grief. She asked you something that many people did about the tragedy, including me right now. Why did such an experienced mountaineer like Marty Schmidt and his son go against the opinion of 18 other climbers and five Sherpas to go up when everyone else was coming down? Yeah, um, I think, you know, let me just answer that second question in a second. I think when when a tragedy hits you, whether it's an aircraft crash, whether it's, a, uh, you know, a stampede, whether it's something, people want answers. And some people devote their whole lives to finding answers, to finding what happens. It's, it's a source of comfort for them, I suppose. Or they'll set up memorials in, in their people's names, things like this. So, you know, people want to try and live on the memory. Um, Sequoia, who was the one who asked me to write the book, I should uh, add that, um, huh. was very demanding. And um, she, she wanted to know, and she was pretty, pretty aggressive. She was angry, angry, angry on, on the phone when I spoke to her and wanted to know why they went up, why they went up. And I can only give... 
you know, at that time, you know, it's, it's happened days before. You, you've got to be a little bit diplomatic, a little bit uh, um, sensitive to people's feelings. When I wrote the book, and this is coming on to the second question why that went up, there's two things. I mean, it was Marty's third time. Uh, I think it was the last chance Denali was going off to study, probably the last chance he would have had to to climb with Denali. Uh, it would have been the first father and son to get up there. Um, and, you know, significance is coming all over it. And, you know, when we're driving for that thing, I think we our judgment can get lost. And this is where I think self-belief also can get in the way. Uh, and you can see this throughout history where self-belief is a very, very powerful weapon for anyone. But when it's unchecked, when it's unchanged, you can lead you to make decisions that, you know, that you later regret. And I just think they thought they were invincible. They were strong. They were confident, skilled. They went up and they just didn't think uh, anything would happen to them. And sadly, uh, it did. But hindsight's a great thing. Of course, if they got it, they would have uh, been heroes. But uh, tragically, they didn't. After experiencing this tragedy and uh, not making it to the top of the mountain, which in and of itself was its own personal tragedy for you. What was it like returning to your normal life after everything that you had gone through? Well, it was, it was horrible. If, and if, if 2012 was bad, you know, I, I'd been prevented from seeing my, my kids, um, but I buried myself into you know, the, the mountain coming back 2013 was even worse because, you know, three things, three things. I mean, we'd, we'd lost two good friends, a, a tragedy hit the mountain. Um, I'd failed. I didn't even give it an attempt. We got to camp two. We never even gave it a shot. And, and I, you know, really it didn't fail things. This was a shock. And I was going back to an even greater crisis back home in the personal life. So, you know, it was an escape, and I'm, a, I'm honest enough to admit it. This, this whole K2 that first year was an escape from the, the dire circumstances going on back home. So three things hit me, and it was, um, it was a very, very dark time. And, I, and I, you know, I think people, I'm sure people listening, some would have gone into depression or been on the verge of it or been in low places. I don't think you quite know when you're there, but I think in that period from after getting back in 2013 that the rest of the fall that year early next year i was i was in a low low place and i can say you know judgment gets flawed your your mind is not in a proper place and the only way the only way i could get out of that bad judgments and things was to was to go full bore for k2 for a second year and i suppose you're going to ask me about that but but <laughs> the second year you know it was absolutely you you can't do these mountains with having any distraction. I thought, I'll, I'll keep to 2013 as the last comment because you'll probably ask me about the second year, but I think on hindsight 2013, I probably wasn't as fit enough as I should have been. Even though I was super fit, I probably had these distractions back home. They probably were taking my eye off the ball. I, possibly I was overconfident that I was going to get up there. So again, I, I think I use these lessons for the, the second year following. Well, that's a great lead-in to my next question, Adrian. How did you change your preparation this time around? I literally put the blinkers on and nothing else mattered back home. It, it couldn't because I said earlier, you, you can't go on these things with having a distraction, whatever it is, financial problems, personal problems, children problems, partner problems, anything like that. You've got to put the blinkers on and go full bore. And 
and I did this, and I, my training became absolutely brutal. It's brutal, and I focused so much more on building up the quad muscles. I didn't. I stopped rock climbing because uh, you know I thought there's no point rock climbing a wall. Really, you're not going to use those muscles. Really, absolute focus training on the the wild mountains of Oman and the United Arab Emirates, the Middle East, where I was living at the time. Sand dune running, stair climbing up the one of the world's biggest buildings. I mean, everything was there, and I think you know. As a sports show, you know, many athletes will talk about getting in the zone, you know, the zone, and this this thing. And I think, I think I fully did in that period when I when I didn't allow these distractions to get in there. I got into this zone, and it was, a, you know, a flowing state of mind, body, spirit. It sounds quite holistic, but I think any athlete who's been there will know what it is. You you feel it suddenly. You're you're there, and it, it you're fully prepared mentally and physically. Was it a night and day difference in terms of how prepared you felt between 2014 and 2013 too? I wouldn't say night and day. I think we are, we're well prepared on 2013, but this was preparation on steroids. It was full, you know, mentally, physically. And I, I, I quote a story in the, in the book where I, I visited my chiropractor, sports medicine expert, and he's been a support sponsor of me for many years. And saw him for a realignment the day before I left for K2 second year. And he had a visiting chiropractor from California, both Californians. And he said to this one, and he told me later how I've never seen Adrian in this state before. He is absolutely in this zone, focused zone. And I didn't know. I just, obviously I was admitting this energy, but uh, he reported to me after. And I, I recorded this thing in, in the book. Hmm. You uh, also did something uncharacteristic just before a plane flight started your travel back to K2 in 2014. You posted something very personal to Facebook. Why did you do that, and what did it say? Yeah, I'd, um, again, going back to what I said right at the start of the show about the significance, you know, I like to think that I did this for my internal. It's just one of the another goals that I'd done for for many, many years. I hadn't announced it the previous year until about a week before. Um, you know, I posted it, and I, and I suppose it was, a, it was a, a message to my kids who I hadn't seen then for two years, basically. Um, I suppose it was a, a rare moment of, of humility, humbleness, and fallibility, or just to say, look, if I don't come back, um, I love you more than anything else uh, in the world, and, uh, but I am coming back. But it was uh, it was a very personal message, and I, I suppose I suppose you feel like you've got to put this thing as a little bit of a, a legacy comment um, that you've got to leave yourself with, you know, before you go straight back into the zone and get into the uh, preparation. Sure, that makes sense. And uh, was there any question as to whether you would attempt K two with Al Hancock again? No, Al and myself spoke in the fall of, of 2013 and uh you know it was a few months he he said himself he needed to get his mind back together and you know i needed we needed each other really we both said well let's you know we'll go back and uh, another year and so we we teamed up again and we had a wider team with us a team of, of eight in total uh, this year but we worked in different pairs and threesomes on, on that uh, on the group so al was my teammate for the second year and um and we were on on the second year more climbers. We were the most experienced ones there. We we experienced the mountain the previous year. You know, we were a source of information to all the teams on the mountain the second year. One difference between your 2014 journey versus 2013 was the gender of three of your Sherpas. How common are female Sherpas, and did you see much of a difference in their performance? Uh, yeah, just correct you there. We had an eight man team, so we had Sherpas in support, male Sherpas, but we had three 
female Sherpas um, who weren't working Sherpas. They were doing it for their own back. So they were part of the eight-man team we had. We had a Chinese girl, New Zealand girl, three Sherpa women, um, uh, and, and myself and Hancock. Um, they were phenomenal. And, you know, I think it's one sport that women seem to do as good as, as men. And, you know, pointing rock climbing as well as mountaineering, there's, uh, there's an ability. And, and all five of these women were, were phenomenally strong. Um, so it's a pleasure to have them on the team. In the first climb, you got as far as Camp 2. Fast forward to the second climb of 2014, specifically to Tuesday, July 15th. You and Al attempt scaling Black Pyramid, very ominous sounding, to Camp 3. What was that like? Yeah, so the second year, we'd had two good rotations. We'd set up Camp 1. We'd had four days or two or three days Camp 1, and we'd tap Camp 2. That was one of them. We we had another rotation of four or five days. It was on the second rotation that we went up this Black Pyramid um, to reach Camp 3. Um, it's a 400-meter, you know, uh, black rock, black pyramid, and it's steep, <laughs> it's technical, it's exposed, it's bad weather. We never reached Camp 3 because the weather was closing in. But, um, you know, it, it just, it just there's many, many steep places on K2. I suppose it's the longer stretch, but... but K2, it starts steep and ends steep. It's steep from start to finish. And, uh, you know, you're climbing vertical rock bands, you're, you know, 75-degree ice, 80-degree rock. You know, it, it's technical rock and glide climbing throughout the whole, uh, the whole climb. After the weather scare pushed everyone back to base camp for several days, you guys got some good news. An extended window of very favorable weather. You formulated a plan from there to make the push to the top. Even though the weather was cooperating, what were some of the inherent risks that you still had to plan for or at least think about? Yeah, we had an unprecedented period of what looked like to be 10 days of good weather. Uh, we hastily conveyed the teams. We sort of split between, tried to split up between half, so we weren't all pushing uh, at the same time. But, you know, you've got these challenges on the mountain. There's various things called the house chimney, the black pyramid, you know, the rock the rock bands, all these things on the way up. But, you know, the success on a, on a 8,000 meter peak all comes down to the final, the final climb. So you've climbed one night to camp one, one to camp two, another night to camp three, another to camp four. And then you're leaving at that night, the same day you reach camp four, you're leaving 8 PM at night to somehow reach the summit of K2 the next day to be able to get back down to camp for a, a closer light the following day. And on that final summit push, you've got a precarious um, ice gully called the, the bottleneck, which is called that because it causes bottlenecks. You've got overhanging ice seracs, uh, an ice wall of 150 yard, um, you know, in, in height. You've got steep, steep ice going underneath it, you know, sheer drops. You know, it, it's, it's, it's horrendous, frankly, looking back on it. And you've got to do all this, you know, at the highest of altitudes and get there the top sometime the next day as i said how was it to get to and set up at camp three considering the tragedy a year prior where that's where marty and denali uh in all likelihood lost their lives a year before yeah so pushing up on on the preparation on that finals you know summit push we reached camp three for the first time so we hadn't reached it before you know i was uh, sequoia also spoke to me look if anything's seen there please let me know first before posting anything i wasn't going to post anything before speaking to anyway but um thankfully it was just it's it's the most avalanche prone camp on the mountain 
and it was just a whiteout, just just buried with snow. So wherever the remains of Marty and Denali were, they they could have been thirty feet, forty feet from where we were camped. It could have been a, a hundred feet, could have been swept down the mountain. We don't know, and that's and that's the best way to have it. You know, you can't rescue people from these altitudes. Best that they be preserved for eternity. You know, under meters and yards of ice. Uh, you know, in the middle of nowhere. That's probably the most uh, comforting way to remember them. Was the final ascent, that last day of pushing to the summit, was that the most grueling part of that climb for you guys? Yeah, as I said before, you know, it, it's grueling. You've you've gone up to the camp for over four days. You haven't slept much. Um, your altitude, you know, you're, and you've got to do what would end up taking an 18-hour climb to get to the top of the mountain through these precarious um, challenges that I spoke to just now. Um, so it was the, the greatest challenge on the way up. And of course, and I'm probably going to ask you about this, when you get to the top, you've got to get down again. And that's where most of the deaths happen. You, you can't get to the top and just uh, relax. And we've done it, folks, you know, um, let's have a picnic. You've got to get down again. And that's when mistakes happen. You're out of oxygen. You're, you're tired all these things, and that's where most of the deaths happen on, on the way down. Is there a good way to describe to somebody who has never done something like mountaineering before what it feels like to get to the top of K2? Yeah, I think the thing with these high altitude mountains, you know you know, within an hour or so, hour or two hours, you're going to make it because the, the weather's looking good. You know, you're, you're, you're feeling yourself strong, you know, Barring, barring anything unforeseen, nothing's going to happen dramatic in that final hour to two. So you're not know going to get up there. So it's a sort of surreal experience pushing up. It's still brutally hard. You're pushing your mind, your body, your breath, your legs to get up there. But you know you're going to get there. Um, when you reach the top, it's like a pinching yourself moment. You know, it's a, it's a surreal experience that, you know, you've, you've done it. You're there. And... Um, but as I said just now, you can't you can't break down in tears and uh, and everything. You you've got a short moment of celebration, a quick bear hug, a quick picture, a quick video snap, maybe a quick call on a satellite phone, um, which you know reception is pretty good because you're quite near the satellites. Um, but then you've got to get down. So literally, you're, I was on the top for five minutes max on the top of K2. Um, you can yes celebrate, but keep your focus, keep your composure, because you've got to get down again. I found it interesting that uh, even though you and Al were up there at the same time, I believe he just he got up there just after you, and you guys did see one another and gave big smiles. You actually did not embrace, which is interesting considering everything that you had been through in those two summers. But uh, as you just mentioned, uh, it's uh, very business as usual. And you guys had also gotten up there a little bit later in the day, so you knew that uh, time was of the essence as you tried to make that descent. And since you already referenced it and how the descent can be even more formidable than getting to the top to begin with, were there any dicey moments for you on that descent? Yeah, I mean, the reason we were behind a little bit was we both had diarrhea, and Al (laughs) had to do his ablutions about 150 meters to the top, which delayed us a bit. Um, and that's at a Hancock Point, right? That's what it was renamed? Hancock Point, yeah. <laughs> Hancock Point. There's a funny story because he, he did his business. There's no place to go to the toilet on these mountains. And if you're, I'm sure your listeners won't buy because it's saying, because it's, uh, it's the, uh, you know, it's the reality of climbing these mountains. But he left his little frozen pile of turd on the mountain <laughs> for the American team who came up the next day 
saw this and one of them roped himself out and kicked it into China. So nothing like <laughs> China relations having a, 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 a diplomatic instance by uh, an American kicking some crap into China. Uh, anyway, but joking aside, yeah, we got up there. Um, we didn't, you know, when I got up there, there was about 10 other climbers there. We, it was down a business. He had some sponsor flags on fail. I had the same. And we, um, you know, quick thumbs up, you know, just over. We, there was no time to get it. That could all wait when we got back down to Camp 4 for one and back down base camp. But getting back down, goes to your final questions, yeah. Um, you know, it's precarious. You know, you're, you've got a, what, the whiteouts come, the weather's closed in. You're descending, rappelling or abseiling down a thin line, which might be held in by an ice axe. You're switching over. You can't see. A, an, a climber who was delirious below me was, you know, he was just suffering from hypoxia, lack of oxygen. You know, it's a dangerous, dangerous time, and you've got to keep the focus. You, you've just got to keep that focus until you get down to that camp four. I appreciate your response that you wrote about to people asking you about a belief in God or your own personal faith at one of the many seminars that you've spoken at over time. So I'll ask you that myself. What is your personal belief in God, religion, and or spirituality? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I sometimes I've got used to ask this because, you know, my other work is a, is a speaker. I'm a leadership and team consultant and coach. I do this work around the world and, you know, anything from from 10 people to, to 2,000. And, you know, some people sometimes will, will ask the question, how did your faith help you? And how did, you know, did you, did you, you know, what was the question you asked? And, and I thought about in the time, and the stock answer I say now is say, I thank the person for the question. It's a very good question. And I say, but I say, I'm not going to answer that question to you because it's because I believe what I believe in or don't believe in is, is personal to me. And it doesn't really matter to anyone else in that room or whatever, what I believe or don't believe in. And, um, and I did, you know, I put in the book and, you know, perhaps if more of the world, you know, kept their beliefs themselves and maybe the world rather than forcing imposing, maybe the world would be a more stable place. Now, I get that even answering that question now, that some people uh, will say, well, I cannot keep my faith to myself quiet. But as I, I think I said, you know, whatever I say there, I will alienate somebody. So I just sort of, so it's, it's personal to me, and it doesn't really matter to anyone else what, what, what they are or not are. Because as I say, if I do say something, someone will be alienated. So I keep it personal myself. Love that. And uh, last thing, Adrian, we're five years removed from you making it to the top of K2. What lessons do you still cherish from that experience, even five years later? Yeah, and no, final answer could be the longest one of all. But look, <laughs> I think that the five years since I did it, obviously there was the two years after it, I had the concurrent five-year battle through family courts, which incidentally ended up, it was the hardest challenge of my whole life, but it ended up on a very positive footing. Um, but also writing the book, and as I said right at the beginning, you know, what I wanted to go in this book. And, and I try and put this in this book about some of the lessons. And, you know, what the lessons are, for instance, why we do these things. Many people ask me, say, Adrian, I want to climb Everest. You know, well, how do I do about it? And I said, the first thing I ask them, why do you want to do this? And be very, very clear. And I you know, and I say myself, I didn't walk to the South Pole to raise awareness of climate change. I didn't climb Everest to show that others, diabetics, cancer victims, women, LGBT, anyone can, can achieve their dreams. And I didn't go to Pakistan to raise money for cancer, for the poor of Pakistan. You know, I did it for myself. And I think people got to be very 
honest about that. So there's one big lesson there. I, I take away the the joy of going into these extreme expeditions where to get away from the clutter, the absolute overwhelm of information overload from technology. And whether it's WhatsApp, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Snapchat, whether it's emails, whether it's we are, my brain is frazzled, frazzled. Uh, and we all are because we just weren't designed this. And yet when you go on these expeditions, you get into a, a different frequency, different wavelength, a different mindset. And, and I take away, and I'll give you just three takeaways, and it's uh, how on these expeditions, how your observation muscles are on heightened state, your awareness muscles, your critical thinking, your problem solving, your, your relationship with your teammates. All these things are just heightened on these big things. And it's just, it's a, a sad reality of our uh, coming back to the so-called real world is a struggle. And, uh, and I hope, you know, the final sort of thing I'll say, I hope people you know, when they read the book and take all these other lessons, really reflect on their own lives. And I say it's as much a book about human development, society, and our lives in the world below as it is the story of climbing K2. Totally agreed with that synopsis there. He is Adrian Hayes, a record-breaking adventurer, author, keynote speaker, leadership coach, documentarian, and Guinness World Record holder. And he is the author of the book that we were talking about today, One Man's Climb, A Journey of Trauma, Tragedy, and Triumph on K2. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Adrian, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Trey. Love being on the show. Thank you.